Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in African Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Sarah Katz, the host for this episode. Today, we'll be talking to Professor Drew Thompson about his book, Filtering Histories, The Photographic Bureaucracy in Mozambique, 1960 to Recent Times, which was published by the University of Michigan Press earlier this year. Dr. Thompson is currently a professor of contemporary art history and visual culture at Ryerson University's School of Image Arts. In January next year, he'll take on a new joint position at the Bard Graduate Center and Bard College as a professor of visual culture and black studies. Professor Thompson, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, so, Professor Thompson, I wonder if you could start by telling us a little bit more about yourself, kind of, you know, what experiences motivated you to get a PhD in history, and kind of how did your academic interests develop? As an undergrad, uh, I was actually an art history and history joint major at Williams College. And during my undergraduate studies, um, in art history in particular, I noticed an absence of African art and African visual culture. Um, And when I was awarded a Mellon Mays undergraduate fellowship, it provided the opportunity to work intensely uh, with faculty mentors, um, Kenda Matungi, who is a historian of East Africa, and Peggy Diggs, who is a public artist. And in some ways, I found in the historical discipline an opportunity to think about Uh, visual culture in dynamic ways that filled filled gaps in art history. I also can should be frank about this, that I found or was highly intimidated by the art history discipline uh, culturally. It just was not a fit, even though I was uh, deeply um, surprised by the power of the visual arts and uh, engaged with visual analysis uh, as a mode of both study and expression. It was actually in the historical discipline that I found a, a greater attachment to my voice. Um, so when the opportunity came to look for graduate study, I pursued history instead of art history, even though I found that uh, visual objects like photography, uh, painting, and sculpture um, were important to me as a lens of study. Um, And while a graduate student at the University of Minnesota, um, uh, which has expertise in social history and Southern Africa, I was specifically drawn to the Lusophone context um, because of for twofold purpose. One was because of the nature of its uh, anti-colonial struggle, uh, which came much later than other parts of Africa, which we know came in the mid 20th century. Um, Lusophone Africa was much later, and it also involved uh, a liberation war. 
which was also very different. And then when we hone in a little bit further, and I'm happy to talk about this a little further, there was something very unique about the role of photography within the Lucifone context that particularly drew me uh, to this field of study. But overall, it was that within the historical discipline, I could ask certain questions and think about the ways in which people uh, engage with visual expression um, that really I found dynamic and um, important. And, you know, as you note in the book, your approach to photography is fairly different than most works of visual studies in Africa. You know, before uh, this interview, I briefly looked through the table of contents of the edited volume Images and Empires, Visuality in Colonial and Postcolonial Africa. Um, you know, there's many chapters there that kind of deal with the sort of intersection of state power and visuality. Um, uh, but the closest thing to considering photography as a tool of statecraft, you know, is probably the chapter from Paul Landau that sort of considers how Western colonial photography works to sort of pigeonhole Africans into different sort of quote unquote tribes, which, you know, of course, uh, was a key part of the colonial project. But still, you know, your emphasis on the role of photography and the kind of nitty gritty workings of state power is somewhat unusual. And so I'm wondering kind of how did you come uh, to your own topic on kind of photography's role in state bureaucracy? Yeah. I want to quickly answer that question by also returning to your first question, which uh, has me going down memory lane. Um, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that when I was in grad school around 2006 to 2013, there was also a radical shift in the discipline of African history, right? We were seeing, as you were mentioning, more books that were paying attention to visual culture, particularly photography, painting, sculpture, other art forms that traditionally the historical discipline had kind of marginalized or disregarded, right? There's this huge critique in both social and political history of Southern Africa that the photograph was largely treated as a form of illustration. So I would be remiss if I didn't mention that while I was also in graduate study, that there was also a seismic change in the historical discipline that uh, that was in some ways pioneered by Paul Landau. I would be remiss not to mention Patricia Hayes at the University of Western Cape, um, who founded the Visual History Center. Seminar, um, and other scholars across the continent who were paying attention to photography. It just was not on the minds of historians based in North America and in Europe. When I looked at the Lucifone context, I was also, when I initially came in, and this is a, it's a formative part of the book's introduction, my interactions with the painter uh, Malangatana. Um, he was one of my first contacts in Mozambique. Um, and I often refer back to this interview because at the start of this project, um, when it was in dissertation form, I was interested in the role of the visual arts in anti-colonial struggle in Mozambique. Um, as I mentioned, Mozambique had a liberation war that ran from uh, roughly 1963 to 1974, 75, when independence was obtained from Portugal. Uh, and in that interview, I asked Malangatana the role of painting and his practice as a quote-unquote modernist an artist with a modernist aesthetic and he kind of looked at me dumbfoundedly and said you know why are you talking to me you should be talking to photographers and i was really jolted by that moment and then he went on to say you know a dear friend of mine was the photojournalist ricardo rangel um and when i went to 
take up that lead or take up that thread that he was um, offering up. Um, I visited the archive of Ricardo Rangel, a photojournalist um, um, based in Mozambique who started his practice while Mozambique was a colony of Portugal uh, in the 1940s in the dark room. A whole world of photography, photography opened up, and one of the foundations, or why this work is possible, is because it's based on the premise that um, photography was fundamental to the making of both the colony of Mozambique and its independence. And what you see is this kind of through line: different generations who are not only practicing photography, but at independence, a new generation of photographers were. Pop, um, were birthed or possible because the independent state invested heavily in the making and practice of photography. And so to also return to your mentioning of um, Paul Landau's work, what I'm trying to do here in this book is also offer up a history of photography that kind of pays attention to the materials, the photographs, the negatives, um, the, techni the technical aspect of photography, but it's also its social and political importance. Great. Um, and, you know, since I imagine some of the listeners uh, may not know much about Mozambique, uh, perhaps it would sort of help to start if you could give us just a general overview uh, of Mozambican history, you know, at least in terms of, of the time period that you cover in your book. Yeah, yeah, abs absolutely. This was kind of a tricky kind of subject for me in thinking about time period. Um, you'll notice that the book's time frame is really generally framed as 1960 to recent times. Recent times not necessarily being only about the present moment, but in the book chapters itself, it kind of ends um, in 1993, 94, and the epilogue kind of tries to make it more present. What you see through 1960 to 1993, why I kind of chose those dates was first um, Mozambique was a colony of Portugal. Um, that Portuguese rule um, over Mozambique kind of solidified around 1936 with the dictator Antonio Salazar and his um, plan for the Lusophone colonies, which would have been Mozambique, Angola, Cape Verde, Sao Tome, Principe, and Guinea-Bissau. Um, and his plan was called the Estado Novo. Um, and in 1960, you begin to see this vision for the Portuguese empire, which is upheld by this idea that of lusotropicalism, that Portugal is one with its quote-unquote brethren on the continent of Africa because of its proximity to the continent, and this kind of shared racial ideology, um, you begin to see cracks, breaks in this across um, the Lusophone world. And I would be remiss also if I didn't mention Goa and Macau, which were sort of the Asianic kind of dimensions of this Lusophone world. Particularly in 1960, um, most, um, the Portuguese are engaged in Angola in what looks to be a liberation war. And Goa declares its independence around 1961. And so it is in those cracks that you begin to see um, an emergence of an anti-colonial struggle. Um, why I started there was because of these cracks. Um, and then across in the context of Mozambique, you have a liberation war that is from 63 to around 74, 75. Um, you have a very complicated civil war um, that starts in Zimbabwe and then transitions to Southern Africa. And then by the early 90s, with the fall of apartheid and also 
the ending of a Cold War in particular, you have the emergence of this quote-unquote democratic nation. Um, in that span of time, you also are able to map different changes in photography. Um, you have a press practice that continues across that time, but you also have a commercial practice that takes on new dimensions. And so the time framing is both to frame um, the emergence of the Mozambican state and its independence and the various transformations it goes through after independence, but it's also to account for very different photographic practices um, and generations of photographers who come onto the scene as a result of these political changes. Great. So now that we're kind of uh, situated a bit, I'm curious to know more um, about your research methods for this project. And you know, feel free to kind of reflect on what methods worked really well, as well as sort of what methods maybe ultimately proved to be less helpful than you anticipated. Yeah. It's so interesting because in some ways, photography as a medium and mode of historical study feels um possible or suitable or, you know, that there's some, uh, there's something really unique about photography and it allows you to talk about political and social history in dynamic ways. But one of the things that I immediately, um, in terms of criticism, started to face, whether it was in readers' reports or in conference presentations of this work, is like, how do you know that's really what's happening in the photograph? And it seemed as though, um, in some ways, the historical discipline was kind of deeply distrustful of the photographic image, whereas when I was looking at it, it allowed for us to refute history or talk about Mozambique's history in new dimensions. For example, um, in the colonial context of Portugal's rule over Mozambique, what was really interesting are the ways in which um, a photographic practice emerges in dark rooms and commercial studios. Um, many of the commercial photography studio owners in colonial Mozambique um, were settlers from Portugal. Um, and the labor laws um, that the Portuguese administration applied to Mozambique opened up new possibilities for Blacks and other non-white populations, not only to get jobs in photo studios, which allowed them to acquire the technical skills of photography, but also um, made for a dynamic market of photography. Um, so I was kind of at attention here because it allowed us to talk about race and the politics of the moment in different ways. But like with the historical discipline, it was always like, how do you know what you're talking about? How does photography allow us to talk about history in specific ways? At the same time, if I return to my friends over here in visual culture or art historical studies, um, I noticed that there was, uh, while there was an interest in talking about photography in Africa, there was a particular neglect to account for the Lusophone context, which was dynamic in so, so many different ways, because Mozambique is close to the Indian Ocean. You also have Southern Africa, which is under a different type of political system, that of apartheid, which functioned very differently than Lusotropicalism and the colonialism implemented by um, the Portuguese, but there was largely a lack of consideration of the Mozambican context. And further in that literature, um, and what I try to do in this book, is to highlight the ways in which um, Mozambicans themselves or their political institutions in which they were living within were debating and talking about photography. Um, the conceptual literature was not taking account of these historical ways in which people over time were understanding changes in time based on the photographic materials that were 
um, available to them. Um, and so to get to my historical method for this was both a consideration of archives of photographs um, and the concept of filtering is um, in some ways how I'm trying to anchor my historical method. What was characteristic of the history of photography in Mozambique was that you were seeing over time certain photographs appear in the press or that in oral histories that I connect, con conducted with um, various um, constituencies of these visual economies, uh, different memories of certain photographs. And so the press is only one part uh, of this larger story. And so what I say, argue is with this idea of filtering is that you can trace different photographs' presence or um, public appearance. And what does that mean? How do these photographs look differently in the press? Or why weren't certain photographs viewed? Because in these archives, you have hundreds of thousands of photographs that people had never seen. Um, and so oral histories then became really important um, in two accounts. First, to kind of recount or rethink the ways that photographs appear and they disappear um, from the public realm, um, but also to reconstruct this history of photography, the, the professional aspects, the social aspects, um, the political aspects, the ways different groups of photographers, whether press or commercial, were interacting um, with uh, state institutions. And so what this book does in terms of method is try to, I think, introduce ways of using photographs as a historical tool, not to say that my um, the, that scholars have not done that, but it also seeks to kind of map a history of photography through those experiences of those photographers and the viewers of their images uh, who saw those images. Great. And you, you also draw on Ariella Azule's concept of a photographic event. Um, so perhaps can you maybe you know expand a bit on sort of what this means as well as how it kind of informs how you you know use photographs as a kind of historical source? Yeah, so just to recount for our listeners, Ariel Zulay um, is a theorist of imperialism and also histories, different histories of photography. And in this idea of the photographic event, she tries to, push scholars away from just paying attention to photographs themselves, right? That she says, uh, she argues that you do not have um, to have a photographic print for it, there to be a photograph, that in some ways people's historical experiences are sometimes hinged on the fact that they know um, a photograph exists but we sometimes never see that photograph. And in her context, particularly the Israeli-Palestinian context, she speaks about the ways in which in, um, the military police um, interrogate um, people. And they say, we have a photograph, but they never reveal to the detainee what photograph that they have. And the detainee is operating under the impression that there is a photograph attached to the event that they are being questioned about. And so here within my work, while I, I appreciate the vast conceptualization of photography, I was also trying to show over time the way that bureaucrats in the Portuguese colonial bureaucracy or 
fighters in Free Limo's Liberation War think and talk about photography um, and the ways in which they are producing photography. And so that became really important to not only talk to soldiers and photographers, but also the editors of their images. Um, so when I talk about what's unique about Mozambique in the context is that you have editors who worked with photographs, you have photographers who took those pictures, you have people who remember seeing those images in the press, and you can put all of these kinds of photographs um, together and these experiences with photography together. And so while I appreciate Azoulay's um, understanding of the photographic event, I'm also trying to kind of complicate that, um, I think, particularly by contextualizing the uh, uniqueness of photography in Mozambique, but also offering up new ways that we might theorize photography. And that, the, that's where the idea of the photographic bureaucracy comes in. And I'm happy to talk about that more. Great. Um, okay, so your, your first chapter considers how photography was part of the infrastructure that enabled mm. the, sort of the continuation of the Portuguese empire. As you put it, you know, for both Portugal and Mozambique, photography operated much like bridges and roads. And you know, whether you intended it or not, it kind of dovetails nicely with debates we're having in the US right now about kind of what is or is not infrastructure. But in any case, uh, how did Portugal use photography to address the unrest sort of within its empire in the 1960s? Yeah. So uh, in this chapter, and I, I, uh, I'm really drawn to, again, an image by uh, Ricardo Ringel, and it speaks to something unique happening in Mozambique that I, I, I work through. Why is the history of photography in Mozambique so unique? And why is it so possible to write? And so this, there's this photograph that the chapter um, Portugal's photographic play hinges on. And it's an image of men gathering outside a, a window where there is text pasted on the window uh, and the photographer, who is Rangel, is standing on the inside documenting the throngs of people clamoring to see the image uh, and text on the, the window. Uh, and this image is important because it is an image that sort of designates um, the awareness of the possibility of independence in Mozambique because the text that the individuals were reading was uh, news of Goa's annexation or independence from Portugal. Uh, what you have is that the Indian army uh, declaring that the colony of Goa is no longer a colony, but a part of the Indian nation state. Uh, and news is being received in Mozambique. And why this is important is for, for two reasons. One, uh, it, it shows that processes of decolonization are happening alongside colonization. And here, Rangel speaks about why he took that image, which was his surprise and also his awareness that there was a way of fighting Portuguese colonialism. The other reason that this image is important is because when you look to the archive in the quote-unquote metropole or the Portuguese colonial archive, you notice in the type documents that there is a struggle amongst bureaucrats to get photographs of what is happening in Goa. And here it is in the Mozambican context that you have photographs of 
what is happening in Goa, although in a distant and kind of metaphorical way. And why I start there is because that photograph allows us to expand our thinking about photography in one in which, again, this idea of the photographic event, uh, you can then explore the ways that bureaucrats are typing and writing, vigorously sending telegrams back and forth um, between the colony and the metropole uh, about not only how to respond to anti-colonial progress, um, protests that surface, um, but also the ways in which to kind of apprehend or get images of this event. And it is within this context of the, the what one would say is the absence of an image in one place and the presence of it in another place that photography is taking form. The other part of this chapter is also grappling with the reality that empires are never unified, right? That the, that what was happening in Lisbon was very different from what was unfolding in the ground. And in the context of Portugal's colonialism, they the Portuguese relied on a quote-unquote colonial state structure by which to carry out what the, the what the metropole wanted. And in some ways, there was a dissonance. And why this idea of infrastructure becomes captivating to me is, is that you have a photographer like Ricardo Rangel, who is taking photographs and documenting these events that speaks to a kind of colonial visual economy that shows the ways in which press photography overlaps with um, uh, commercial photography. But at the same time, the colonial state is relying on that very same infrastructure. So the concept of infrastructure here allows us to talk about the history of the colony, but also the ways in which we can then trace the interaction between the metropole and the colonial state, um, and also see the uniqueness uh, of photography um, there. Right. And I guess kind of related to that is this question of, you know, you note that there was sort of some difference between how the authoritarian state of Portugal and then the sort of the colonial state of Mozambique uh, mm -hmm. approached photography. So sort of what was that that difference and kind of why is it significant or kind of what does it tell us? Yeah, um, I think what is interesting here is that I argue is that the, uh, the authoritarian Portuguese state um, never could manage to take photographs. <laughs> I, there was kind of a hesitancy to make and produce photographs. You do have a set in, uh, of scholars in Portugal who, who have studied the colonial empire and photographers who worked for the colonial state. But what the type documents reveal is a kind of hesitancy to take images and produce images, and that there is a sense of power gained by writing about images. Hence this concept that I use in the chapter which is called photographia. When, when going to the colonial Portuguese archives, one automatically notices, sure, there are photographs, but you would look at administrative documents and there would be no photographs, but there would be the presence of ideas about photography that were expressed through this term photographia, that the, the diplomatic police from or the, the, the information news service, they were talking about photography through photographia. 
Um, and then you ask about the colonial state, and in, it's so interesting is because you have Portuguese soldiers who are going to commercial photographers to get their image taken, and then to send, putting their image in newspapers alongside some of the images that Rangel are, are taking. Um, and they were writing for pen pals and writing to talk about their loved ones. But you were also having a way in which it was in this economy of photography that we were seeing the political affairs of the state. And I think that the colonial state at some level, and it, you see these fractures at independence, was struggling not only to gain control over a rapidly changing situation in Mozambique, but also grappling with how to actually implement, uh, implement the orders that were coming down from the metropole. And in this chapter, I show a photograph um, of colonial bureaucrats actually looking at some of Rangel's photographs. And, and this photograph was um, printed in a newspaper, Noticias de Vera, uh, and it was a reportage about uh, one of Rangel's photographic exhibitions. And why I find this photograph so interesting is, is that you see um, bureaucrats of the colonial state who are known for censoring documents, also referring back to these documents. Uh, and, and it's interesting that they are looking at photographs that they have also are choosing to take out of the public view. Um, and so there's something about these photographs and the ways in which photographers like Rangel or military photographers are choosing to document the moment that I think talk to the kind of fractures um, between the, the authoritarian and state and the colonial state. You also note that the Portuguese often substituted, um, or not substituted, but well, sometimes substituted uh, photography of illustrations, or uh, they paired photographs with kind of sound um, or text, or, or they, you know, they also photographed um, the kind of infrastructure of sound as well. So, so why was it that kind of photographs generally didn't stand alone when sort of put to use by the colonial state? Yeah, it's interesting, uh, your question, because I've been thinking about the ways in which sound is important. And for our listeners, um, when one visits the colonial archive, there are various typed documents that are attached to military operations, diplomatic operations, and just the day-to-day -day affairs of the colonial and the authoritarian state. Um, the element of sound comes in is because the military, when the war, when it's choosing to escalate its war in um, Mozambique, particularly, I'm thinking about the years of 65 to the early 70s, around 72, 73, when you have the Gordon Knot Offensive. Um, they are uh, electing to uh, send uh, illustrated pamphlets over various areas of Mozambique in order to obtain support from different populations who might be, uh, that they see quote unquote, as vulnerable to supporting the liberation movement. Uh, and sound comes into play is that they are using sound um, to accompany the distribution of these flyers. And so they're sending messages like um, Portugal and Mozambique are one, uh, just as they're dropping a pamphlet of a flag that I show in that chapter that shows hands of different races holding each other around the Portuguese flag and the map of Mozambique in the middle. And why I was so interested in an image that is showing the distribution of these pamphlets, particularly the, the megaphone, 
was the way in which you are led to read or interpret that image tells us something about the role of photography um, within this context. And I was led to read it in terms of what could be said and what was said visually. Uh, and I think in some ways you also notice in interrogation reports, which sound is also important, that they are the Portuguese bureaucrats, this case, or soldiers are um, trying to win support for the war. So they are asking different populations who are particularly living in northern Mozambique. Um, they are asking what they see of the Free Lima Liberation Movement. They are asking questions about uh, who do they support. Um, and in these interrogation reports, you see the recording of sound through text. Um, and so in that chapter, particularly that photograph, I was interested in ways that these stories get interpreted and how that information leads to different types of photographic production. I also would argue, as I'm going back and uh, thinking back to some of your earlier questions about the interactions between the authoritarian state and the, the colony, I think in some ways it was this information that held these two various bodies, political entities together, that it allowed them in some ways to um, be able to stay in the war for so long, considering how detrimental both the cost and the loss of life was to uh, the Portuguese nation, which was uh, incredibly poor uh, and reliant on a younger population to um, economically sustain itself. Okay. Um, and then in your next chapter, um, you look at sort of the other side of the decolonial struggle, Free Limo, uh, and how they used photography as well. And sort of here you develop your concept of paper diplomacy. So what role did photography play during Free Limo's period as a liberation movement? Um, or as you sort of put in the book, how did Free Limo use photographs and written documents to or orchestrate an image of a Mozambique freed from Portugal's control? Thanks. Thanks for that question. Um, one of the things to note, and I think it's really important, and again, one of the reasons I was drawn to this project is what is unique about uh, Mozambique's history and its liberation struggle or and, and, and or anti-colonial struggles is the fact that within this context of this liberation movement, uh, Free Lima, which um, should be noted, that was a political movement that took its political contours and form in exile. It was located in Dar es Salaam uh, with military bases in southern Tanzania at the invitation of um, the president, Julius Nyerere. Um, what was unique about Free Lima is that in my research, and I <laughs> I'm happy to be proved wrong here, that Free Lima was one of the only liberation movements in Southern Africa to actively train its soldiers as photographers. Um, so you have a, a group of soldiers, here I'm thinking about Daniel Macanassi, Artur Torwat, Carlos uh, Jumbo, Jose Suarez, uh, and a number of other lesser known figures who were trained at different moments in the liberation struggle to actively photograph the liberation movement. And so you have a way in which Frimimo as a liberation movement is very aware clearly of the importance of photography if it's choosing to train its soldiers as photographers. And these photographers would accompany different military delegations who were wanting to uh, visit 
northern Mozambique. Uh, the liberation movement of Free Limo started in Cabo Delgado, lo- located in northern Mozambique, and, and tried over the course of the war to expand all across um, Mozambique, but was mostly a war that took place in the northern half. Um, and Free Limo tried to build what it called liberated zones, uh, areas that were freed from Portuguese control. So these photographers would accompany the, the upper echelon of Frelimo's political movement, uh, the Committee Central, um, on visits to these liberated zones, and they would kind of um, photograph different visits, and Frelimo would archive photographs. In other work, I talk about this history of photography, but within this concept of paper diplomacy, I was particularly interested with why photography and how did, if we're taking the theme of the first chapter about photography as infrastructure, how did Freelimo really set up this infrastructure to actually um, start a photographic section and sustain it? Uh, and so paper diplomacy is a way of kind of looking at the archive um, that I found in 2015, 2016, um, was finally granted access to um, the archives of Freelimo that were located at the Archivo Historico de Mozambique, um, particularly within its external affairs section, um, as well as its information section, which include documents about its photographic usage and in paper diplomacy, you see requests for cameras. You see requests for different types of visits by delegations, not only from Freelimo, but from the outside world. And so paper diplomacy is this kind of argument about uh, how did Freelimo get its film and how did it train its photographers? Uh, and what becomes apparent in this kind of story about looking at the emergence of a photographic section that really takes form post-68, after its first president, Edward Manlon, was assassinated, Frelimo takes on, um, is led by um, the first president of Mozambique, Samora Michel, and in the information section is really um, working to get support for photographs. Um, And talking to officials, they speak about the role of photography as important also in the diplomatic affairs of the movement. Um, And so paper diplomacy is a way of looking at the shuffling of paper and the shuffling of paper as also allowing for the sustaining of the photographic movement and photographic practice of the liberation struggle. Um, And if I could add one more thing about this, which I think is also really important, not all images have the same function. And what Freelimo realized early on is that its own photographers taking images of the liberation war and of liberated zones would not resonate necessarily internationally. So what happened is that it invited international delegations of filmmakers and photographers to take its own images. And so in some ways, you see um, these visits in the photographs of uh, those taken by Freelimo photographers. And it also points to the fact that Freelimo wanted to collect as many images as possible, but also recognize that the images of the liberation war by its own photographers did not have the same larger global impacts. So there was a way in which its photographers like Jombo, Makanasi, and others were important to that kind of navigation of the, the PR of the war. You also you know, note that all of this is kind of happening in the context of the Cold War. And so that, you know, Absolutely. giving cameras 
was perhaps a kind of uh, less politically risky way to give some support um, to Free Limo as opposed to, say, you know, an arms deal or, or something like that. Yeah. And um, I think this is a really interesting kind of point because in the work itself, um, I talk about this photograph particularly of um, a Free Limo soldier who is wearing an AK-47 and he's at a manual printer. Uh, And one of the ideas of paper is its reproducibility or the ability to produce photographs in on different forms of paper. Uh, and here, what I found really interesting is that some of the printers were not able to reproduce photographs. Um, and then to your point is that these printers and some of the other regalia like watches or guns, um, they pointed to the Cold War in profound ways. Uh, when you look at a number of the military uh, operations that were photographed, uh, or one would argue staged for the camera, because in some ways, soldiers um, who I interviewed um, who were photographers said that they struggled to um, take photographs as they were called to fight, uh, because uh, as we know, um, Portuguese were conducting operations on these liberated areas, dropping napalm, dropping military bombs. And so some ways they that escaped documentation because photograph photographers chose to pick up their arms. So a number of these kinds of photographs are staged, especially the ones with the guns. Um, and I talked to um, a military historian at the Smithsonian who helped me identify the different weapons. And in identifying the weapons, some were uh, guns from Russia and some were guns from China. And you can see different strategies of war that the Chinese in some ways uh, were arguing for a ground war while the Russians wanted an air war. Uh, Free Limo photographers were always strongly uh, rooted on the ground in their fights. And also in that way, you could see that these photographs are pointing to their use in negotiating uh, the Cold War uh, kind of politics. And this is also, I think, uh, an important reason why we also need to pay attention to what Deborah Poole calls the photographic economies in here, um, uh, or uh, James Javier calls the photographic complex is paying attention to the materials themselves. Where are they coming from? And as you mentioned, it was actually um, in the appetite of many Eastern nations to donate cameras and films, which had their own aesthetic quality, than it was to get involved in this arms race. And so I, what I try to do also in this chapter is talk about the diplomacy um, of these films. So there's the d- diplomacy of Free Limo as a liberation movement trying to gain recognition. There's the diplomacy of the actors and their interest in giving photographs. And then there's also the diplomacy of photographers trying to navigate navigate this web um, um, that is being crafted for the fight for liberation. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, and then sort of over the next few chapters, you sort of turn to, to look at how Free Limo sort of has to shift from being a liberation movement uh, to being in charge of running a post-colonial state. So how is it, as you put it, that the actions of officials charged with operating the photographic bureaucracy exposed the paradoxes of decolonization? Yeah, I think there's so many layers to this. And I guess for the readers, uh, uh, listeners and readers, hopefully, <laughs> of this book, one of the things to explain is that 
And Mozambique's post-independence period is a really complicated and politically charged moment um, to, to study um, for a number of reasons. The first being is that no one won the war in Mozambique. It was a political negotiation of expediency. Frilimo was willing to fight to the end, but within political circles, there were different fractions about how to navigate. Um, Portugal was toppled, um, partly not only because of the might of Frilimo, um, but it was it was stretched. There was a liberation war happening in Angola and Guinea-Bissau. And then there was a coup, um, Vincinco uh, do Abril, that happens in Lisbon that to- topples the Caetano regime and sends this ide- ideology of lusotropicalism and Portuguese colonialism and the empire um, into another phase, its, its last phase or last stage. And, I, and so what you have is an independence that's not swift and that's not quick, that goes through what I call um, and others have called a transition period. So Mozambique enters a period of transition in April 74, and it's almost a year and some months before it actually achieves independence. Shortly after independence um, in 76, it's engaged in another war. Frilimo pledges its support to Zamb- Zimbabwean liberation efforts. It stays in a war with um, Zimbabwe uh, and Ian Smith until 81, 82. And then it's drawn into another war uh, with apartheid South Africa. Uh, and so you have a complicated political period. And what the last three chapters of the book try to do is kind of dissect that. First, it looks at the transition period itself from probably 74 to roughly 81. And then it takes on those years of 81 to 93, the first presidential elections, um, by looking at um, uh, identity documents and uh, also the news agency, which I'm Again, I'm sure we'll touch upon. So I just want to give that kind of context to answering um, your question, because uh, in the chapter itself, I introduced this idea of transitional photography. What happens um, when you, this transition is happening? You have photographers like Rangel who are meeting Frilimo as the liberation movement for the first time. Frilimo as a liberation movement is like having to transform itself or transition itself from being a liberation movement into uh, the newly independent political party that is governing Mozambique. Uh, And then also you have these kinds of political changes that are unfolding uh, that are natural for decolonization. And one of the things that I sort of mentioned in this book is that many people at at independence in Mozambique had never seen their image of themselves or never seen a photograph in a kind of press context. And so these photographic practices and political expediencies are all colliding. And Frilimo as a bureaucracy is taking form. And so one of the things that I, this chapter argues, and this is where this concept of photographic bureaucracy comes from, is that the Portuguese state, the colonial state that was constructed, was weak. It was not well-funded. It was not well-run. And Frilimo itself had never governed in the capacity of actually being inside of Mozambique and was assuming control of this bureaucracy. And what I argue is that photography, photographers, and the medium of photography was important to this construction of the bureaucratic state apparatus that Frilimo would govern. Officials talk about a need to 
both transform its image and control its image. And for press photographers who were of the generation of Ricardo Rangel, Coke Nam, and others, there was this transformation that they needed to go underway. Um, a side note or a caveat to all of this is it's important to know that when Free Limo came into power, it nationalized private industry. And part of that was taking control over phot photographic studios. Uh, and in some ways, that explains its, its interest in photography is explained in the context of the liberation movement. And one of my favorite photographs that I think kind of documents this transition is the photograph um, in chapter three of the birth. Um, <laughs> in some ways, uh, Jose Cabral, who is a, a photographer who started his practice in the colonial moment, uh, his family, uh, he acknowledges were bureaucrats in the colonial state, but he always saw himself as being Mozambican and learned photography um, because of the darkroom in his house and the National Geographics that crossed his coffee table. He talks about taking photographs in this early moment of independence and a certain type of freedom that he felt, and that freedom led him to photograph a woman giving birth. And in that photograph, he shows the process of birth, and we see the child coming uh, out of a woman's vagina. And immediately when these photographs are published in the weekly magazine uh, Revista Tempo, the state goes up in arms. It tries to take all the magazines off the shelf um, and calls immediately all of these photographers and journalists in saying that this is not the way to report on the nation state, uh, and it asserts its control and power over images. And I think this is an interesting moment in which you see the kind of control that Free Limo as a liberation movement sought through photography, the types of visual expressions and expectations that photographers had for the documentary apparatus, which is supposed to document and show what one wants to see. And the state has trouble over its course seeing what its photographers want to see because there's an overarching urge to control the image um, and make photographs and photographers see what they want to see um, of the, the historical moment. You also then kind of then turn to uh, the role that photographs played or, you know, struggled to play as a technique in population management, um, which, you know, took a violent turn in Mozambique. So perhaps to start, can you describe uh, the different identity cards that were used by Freelimo? Yeah, um, this chapter, which is called the fourth chapter, which is called IDing the Past, speaks to, I think, in some ways, um, I don't want to say unhappiness, but discontent to a certain extent with the literature and photography, particularly the history of photography, which tends to think of a homogenous or homogenizes um, commercial photography. And in the context of Mozambique, uh, what you see are different ways in which commercial photography sustains press practices, um, but also at independence, the nation state or independent nation asserts its control over commercial studios. And it does that in two ways. First, it acquires different commercial studios that were abandoned um, by the Portuguese nation state. And then it also does this um, by relegating to commercial photographers the need to produce headshots. And headshots are those photographs that 
go on ID documents. So in the early, so what I do in this chapter is that I try to trace these the way that commercial photography changes in the moment of independence by having to produce headshots for identity documents. And I, I, I think that's really interesting also because um, an argument that surfaces in this chapter is that these commercial photographers for a range of regions can never provide everyone with ID documents uh, and that many populations in Mozambique learn to live without them just as the state chooses to assert its control over populations on the basis of whether or not they have ID documents. So to your earlier question at independence, it, it first initiates an identity document, which would be a passport or a, a, a just an individual ID document. Then it goes on to implement other forms. Uh, there is a party card. Uh, and then in the early 1980s, there are a labor card, a worker's card, and then a residence card. Um, a worker's card um, has its kind of origins in similar kind of past book or past photos. Um, but it also has its origins in w ways in which the state itself is trying to gather up or shore up labor. Uh, and then the residence card was to identify people living in particular areas and regions. And then an out, uh, offshoot of that was the ration card, because we can't forget this is the 18, in the 1980s, uh, and there were vast food shortages, uh, and the ration card became a way of distributing food. Um, so you have these kinds of identity documents, and out of that, um, uh, as I think Freelimo and Mozambique faced famine, uh, and the need for labor production and economic productivity, you have, as you mentioned, different strategies by the government to operationalize or take advantage of different uh, forms of identification. Right. And sort of as you've hinted at already, there were kind of real stakes uh, involved in whether or not somebody was able to obtain a headshot and proper documentation. Um and so sort of, I mean, why was it so hard for Mozambicans to kind of obtain their headshots? And, you know, perhaps most importantly, kind of what could happen to those who failed to do so and why? Yeah. Um, one of the chapters that open up, uh, one of the photographs that open up the book itself is uh, a photograph of a photographer uh, taking a uh, a picture of two young boys um, and in the background, a man stands waiting for uh, his photograph to be taken, just as in the photograph that we have, um, we see a young boy holding up the background. And, and this photograph points to early commercial photographic practices and practices and economies in which we see um, people trying to obtain their identity document. In um, commercial practice, what we notice in some of these photographs of people getting their picture taken, we see two people being seated together. Um, and one in some so many so much of this literature on African photography sees that as a portrait of two people, uh, this notion of self-portraiture. But in the case of Mozambique, um, we have supply shortages that date to the colonial period that continue on into the independence period. And it was a strategy to get two photographs and then they would cut it up the middle and separate the photographs and have headshots for um, different clientele of this commercial market. 
And one of the reasons it was so hard to get photographic equipment is because photographic equipment was scarce. Um, we hear, um, we hear in, um, and Sarah, I don't mean to diverge here, but there is this kind of rhetoric um, in photographic discourse about the racist nature of different photography companies. Um, and that sort of, um, uh, one of the actors who is uh, quoted here is uh, the uh, uh, filmmaker Jean-Luc Goudard, uh, who spent time in Mozambique. And he is notoriously quoted as saying that Kodak film was racist because it couldn't show um, black people. And we also have heard in other corners of the world at similar times that Kodak film was racist because when you look at the Shirley card, it, it features a white woman and not a black woman by which to calibrate uh, the color of uh, the of colored film. And, and for me, in this kind of context of Mozambique, what I want to kind of point out, and I have talked to people who were in charge of procuring films, and they said Mozambique had no money to buy Kodak. So this debate for them was kind of moot because the currency itself was devalued and Kodak film was so expensive. And so the solidarity agreements that had started during the Liberation War actually continued um, in the independence period and in the trade agreements, whether it's with Germany, East Germany, or other Eastern European nations, Freelima was oftentimes trading cashews for Agfa film or Uver film. And so there was always an, a supply shortage of films. And so in some ways, the absence of photograph, uh, the absence of the headshots was based on the absence of actually photographic materials. And it was also because these commercial photographers were not large in number, and it wasn't as if the state itself was controlling the ways in which people could actually get their headshots. Yeah, and then, you know, as you sort of uh, point out, you know, when if people did not then get their headshots, it made them susceptible to have to be sort of like relocated um, from the cities into the countryside. So perhaps could you sort of yeah. Uh, expand on, on that part of this historical moment. Yeah, so what you see in, in this chapter on IDing the past, the first half looks at this archive of the, or, or ideologies behind self-portraiture and the headshots, which have um, um, particular kinds of histories in the longer history of the liberation struggle, um, and trying to map out uh, this idea uh, of, uh, of self-portraiture. But in 1981-82, when Free Limo faced food shortages um, and also overcrowdedness in its capital city, uh, which was under the Portuguese called Lorenzo Marx, uh, then changed at independence to become um, a Moputu, um, you, it, the Free Limo government felt the need to relocate populations from these urban centers to uh, the countryside. With the, under the guise of developing the countryside, um, alleviating the pressure on the cities. Part of this, if the cities were overcrowded, Frilima was feeling the political pressure. So what was implemented was this program called Operação Produção, Operation Production. Um, in which they would actively relocate populations to areas across the country in need of development. What was interesting here is that Freelimo needed to identify these populations, and in order to do so, it relied on the identity documents that it had provided, supposedly provided people. And here, what you find is, is that Freelimo is 
identifying populations for relief patient on the basis of the absence of having certain identification. And I think this is really an important idea for thinking about press photography, because in some ways, what the press was able to see of Aparasal Prarasal was on the basis that the person themselves who was being photographed did not have some identification of themselves. So in the context of operation production, um, the, the, the state itself was choosing to relocate uh, on the basis of this absence of the ID document. And so you have this interesting play on visibility and invisibility. Um, and also a number of press photographers talk about once people were relocated, you often never heard from them again. And I think in that chapter, I point to how at the end of the war, people were looking for their loved ones who were not only displaced by the war, civil war that's taking place, but also displaced by Operation um, production. And I think it's interesting to then look at the interplay um, of the visual product uh, politics of the moment, not only in terms of how operation production is documented, but also the strategies that people adopted in order to obtain their headshot or be photographed or be seen as a way of um, asserting control. And I think in that chapter, you also see a photograph of an individual who's putting, literally putting the suitcase in front of a press photograph's um, camera lens so they can't identify them as, the, uh, as a group of people are taking a lining up to get on an airplane for relocation. Uh, and so in that chapter is kind of grappling with the headshot that's supposed to give the state uh, some visibility, but the ways in which people also are hiding behind it. And it gets to this idea of opacity um, as an important way of thinking about portraiture. And, you know, at the same time that, you know, ordinary citizens were scrambling for their ID, ID photos, Michelle, the leader of uh, Frilimo at the time, you know, heavily yeah. controlled his image. Um, and, you know, you kind of, uh, you know, give some examples of that. So what, what are some ways that he, he did that? Yeah, there's a story, a unique kind of story um, told by this uh, press photographer, Zhuao Fengshu, um, um, of a Chinese descent, a Mozambican descent, but Chinese heritage, um, who was a university student who started documenting protest, anti-colonial protest in the early 1970s, and then enters the press and is documenting independence. And uh, he recalls, in some ways, um, he, one of his first assignments in the independent nation was documenting Samora Michelle's return to Mozambique, which is called Ruvuma to Maputo, Ruvuma being the farthest city in the north and Maputo being the southernmost capital. And the travel that Michelle made to visit all of the liberated areas and to interact with people. And he recalls the fascination of Michelle seeing his camera, which was a Roloflex camera, and saying to some of his political uh, advisors how he wanted all of his photographers to have the Roloflex camera to photograph his image. Uh, and what you see in Michelle um, also, um, other press photographers recount both the seriousness in which Michelle took his image, also the challenges in which they face as a result of not only the political priorities of Free Limo, but also their materials, their ability of their materials to work, to take those images. So other stories that you see is here is that Michelle was oftentimes um, willing to walk through a door at, to a press conference with journalists several times so that photographers could get the right photograph. Um, Michelle was also 
small, shorter uh, than some of his intellectual co- uh, uh, intellectual colleagues, uh, his international partners, excuse me. Uh, and um, and journalists spoke of having to try to get him at the same height of different leaders um, uh, when he greeted them at the airport or at the presidential palace. Um, and so you do see a kind of way in which Michelle is concerned about his image. And in that chapter, I also talk about how Michelle takes his portrait uh, and we don't know who took his portrait, um, but this portrait is hung um, in government offices, offices where people are supposedly um, supposed to get their identity document. And Free Limo generates a great deal of control through its control of portraiture and this idea of the headshot in controlling who has identity documents. And in 1986, Michelle tragically dies in an air accident, um, which it has been claimed that South Africa is responsible for shooting down Michelle's plane as he returns um, from Zambia at a set of political meetings to kind of uh, mediate the civil conflict that is happening. And in the wake of that death, you have a, a funeral and you never see Michelle's body, um, but you see his image going into the hands of people who are lining the street. Uh, and so uh, I, I think that's an interesting kind of metaphor for thinking about what it means then um, for how Freelimo generates its own political power through the photograph of its leader, when in fact many people don't have their own headshot or image. Um, and then your, your last chapter uh, focuses on the information agency of Mozambique or AIM. Uh, which was a wire service, which, you know, you note sort of first focused mainly on national news, but then later sort of shifts uh, to focus more on international news. You evocatively refer to these photos as dead. So maybe to start, can you kind of explain explain why? Why are these photos dead? <laughs> One of the things, and we are talking about, we were talking about method. Uh, was there are so many photographs that document Mozambique's history and its transformation from a colonial nation to an independent nation. And not all of these images are A, either seen, or B, have the same function. And what was striking to me when you have the Agencia de Informação de Mozambique aim um, was that this was a news agency that took its shape and form in the late 1970s, but was highly active in the early 1980s. Um, The government formed a news agency by which it would send uh, photographs, packets of photographs to different wire services to help impact um, the coverage of the political and economic affairs of Mozambique. And what was really telling for me is that the IEM photogra- uh, photographers that I spoke with here would be Joel Chizisani and Alfredo Muesh, um, two of the more prominent ones, as well as a former director of the photographic se- section, Anders Nielsen. They often spoke about that their photographs traveled the world and were seen across the world. But when you go to the international press and look at their minuscule coverage in, in, in of the, what was happening in Mozambique in the 1980s, you rarely saw Ayin photographs. And so at one level, this idea of the dead photograph was this photograph that was taken but was never seen. It was gathered for archival purposes. Then you also have to take the photograph of the dead 
I was taking it also literally, and that in some ways, um, Ayn journalists, as the war took different types of shapes and forms, found themselves increasingly having to rely on photographing dead bodies to talk about to document the war and document the politics of the moment. And so the dead photograph not only speaks to those photographs that are not seen or don't have any reproducible power for anyone other than its producers, also is to take it literally and think about photographs of dead bodies and how they come to be seen in the press and what is the politics of that. And what you see when you trace that is not only a different you not only see the evolution of these photographers' aesthetic practices, but you also change, see a change in Fulimo's own kind of discourse of power and also willingness and change in how it was choosing to engage photographs, uh, which was very different from when the from the euphoria of independence by the 1980s. Fulimo officials were really concerned that the war would be seen as a civil war. And if it was seen as a civil war, that was undermining its own control and power and feeding into the hands of its apartheid neighbors in South Africa. Right. And this sort of goes into my uh, next question, which, you know, right, is that there is this sort of tension that kind of starts to develop. Whereas, right, as you say, you know, Frilimo wanted there to be a narrative that was sort of that this was this armed conflict within Mozambique's borders was entirely instigated by apartheid South Africa, um, but then you know eventually, as you put it, a kind of picture of civil war surfaced. So this question kind of has two parts. You know, first, I mean, how did Frelimo use visuals to frame internal unrest as a result of apartheid South Africa, and sort of second. Why was it hard for them to control that narrative? The first question, what I think is really interesting about your question is, is that, uh, and what I try to do in this book is, that's why the paper diplomacy chapter is so interesting to think about how Frelimo uses photographs during the liberation movement, because it also points to different types of aesthetics that Frelimo tries to cultivate of itself as a liberation movement to advance the war. Uh, This idea of a freed Mozambique, what becomes really interesting is that rarely do you see photographs of dead Frelimo soldiers. Um, Rarely do you see photographs of the dead. Uh, And in 1976, in response to what is happening in Rhodesia, you have these photographs of dead bodies that are appearing in the press. And, and, and that's around the same time that Jose Cabral is photographing uh, the photographs of the, the childbirth. And it seems based on the letters that, that uh, readers have sent to those press outlets that there's more anger on the photographs of the birth than there are seeing the photographs of, of, of the dead bodies. And so Frelimo becomes very aware of the challenges of the d- documenting these dynamics of the war. And it's also aware of trying to control where photographers go. So Aim, in some ways, and thanks for this question, because I've never thought about it until now, Aim is in some ways developed to help the government control the way that this political war is being represented in the international media. Because Frelimo, uh, does, and at first, does not let Aim photographers or press 
members of its press apparatus to accompany the military soldiers who are fighting this civil war, first with South Africa and um, first with the South, uh, first with Zimbabwe and then with South Africa. uh, Also, what becomes a challenge is that South Africa never stations its own soldiers in Mozambican borders. It chooses to arm an opposition movement with weapons. And that gets to kind of your second question, which is that when journalists are in the areas that are under attack, they're often not only documented after the attack has happened, but if a soldier is captured of the opposition movement, they're finding another Mozambican. They're not finding a South African. Uh, the black. <laughs> this is an interesting metaphor. It's like it's not as black and white, right? It's like even though they're taking black and white photographs, they can't compli- They can't uh, document or uh, um, they can't capture the nuances of the moment in which um, it's it's difficult to see those enemies who are captured as any other than being Mozambican. Right, because the photograph itself and the photographers themselves lack the ability to go to South Africa to show uh, what South Africa is doing in Mozambique. And here is an enemy. They often talk about this. Here, the enemy before you is not white; he's black, and he's Mozambican. So, how do you explain the war with those politics? And, and this goes back to the idea of the dead photograph. Uh, that, that not only are they photographing the dead, they're creating photographs that have no reproducible value. They can't necessarily capture uh, the complicated nature of the historical moment of the 1980s and this war. And so just as you were talking, I have a clarification question. So during when Frilimo is a liberation movement, that's when they're actually, you know, training some of their soldiers to become photographers. But then later on, um, when they're sort of, you know, fighting internal opposition, there is a kind of removal of photography from from their military. Is that accurate? Yeah, that's really accurate because it's, and again, thanks for this question because I've never thought about it. What you have in the 19, after, in the years after independence is a reorganization of the press apparatus that was initially controlled by um, the Portuguese. Um, and in some ways you have, um, generations of new writers uh, and photographers who are moving from commercial photography into the press photography or um, or in the case of Rangel and Koknam and other press photographers who get their start in the colonial period. They're being charged with training a new generation of photographers. Um, also, um, and it's not captured in this book, but in 1982, again, with the help of its international partners cultivated through the Solidarity Movement, Free Limo chooses to open up a national photography school. Um, and this national photography school is initially charged um, with training uh, civil servants as photographers to do the work of the bureaucracy and learn photography in order to either produce, I don't think it is to produce ID shots, but it is to produce uh, different types of photographs that show the work of the government. Um, And so what you have here is, as you point out, is the military itself is no longer, and maybe it is, there's, there has always been in the oral histories that I've taught a little 
uncertainty about the Civil War and what was documented and what is not. There, I can't speak definitively that the military soldiers didn't have cameras, but I haven't seen their photographs. And in some ways, the photographs of IEM and other press agencies were intended to stand in for that type of documentation. And in some ways, I think Free Lima was very aware from the days of the the liberation struggle about the legitimacy of its image. And one of the reasons these images from Aim are considered dead is because the international media saw them as speaking for the military regime and not as a form of independent press. And in that chapter, what I also do is I try to capture how South Africans look at the war. Uh, and South Africans um, like Paul Weinberg, uh, Guy Tillam, um, and others, uh, Cloyd Breckenbach, uh, they visited these areas of Renamo that Freelimo for uh, Freelimo never let the press apparatus visit, and South Africa constructs its own vision. And this vision of war in civil war is immediately taken up by the press because it's seen as more legitimate than the one captured by Aim. But I think here, and thanks for your point in, of clarification, I think to emphasize for our listeners that it's really important to think about how these dead photographs are standing in, or the reproducibility of certain types of images that point to different types of shifts, um, and the changes in Freelimo's control or desire to control images. Uh, and then you, you end the book uh, by reflecting on how the use of photography by the state is being replaced by new technologies. Uh, so can you explain kind of why this has happened? Yeah, it's so interesting because at Independence, Freelimo seems to want commercial photographers to provide headshots. Um, and you see in some ways press photographers documenting this. Um, one of the th fascinations for me in writing this book and oftentimes readers will uh, encounter throughout these images are images of press photographers taking photographs of other photographers at work. Uh, and in particularly taking these photographs um, of headshots. Um, and at Independence, it's this kind of economy that um, Freelimo relies on to provide headshots. Uh, and what was really interesting for me when I was doing this research is that there was a lot of talk in Mozambique about biometric technology, um, the ability to provide individuals with uh, documents, um, highly secure documents. I argue that this is a result of the 9-11, a post 9-11 security culture, um, the way of kind of tracing and tracking individuals through digitization, uh, the biometrics again of the body um, and control. And what was really interesting is uh, Freelimo entering into another set of negotiations, so to speak, with a private entity by which it would purchase technology and be able to um, provide uh, electronic documents to its population and that these electronic documents could be recognized by other nations who were requiring them. And it was in this context that you were hearing commercial photographers um, whose practice dates to the independence period, talking, re recounting their own history and own legacy of commercial photography and worrying that the work that they had been given was being taken away by the state, just as the state itself was revealing its own proclivity um, to control um, photography, particularly this aspect of photography, which is the headshot. And in some ways, what 
I found really fascinating was the ways in which these two histories were playing out. So the epilogue in some ways, maybe it should have been the introduction, I don't know, but it kind of is using this this experience of me navigating not only this project and telling these, trying to use these archives and capture these photographic experiences by which to show how this narrative has reproduced itself in quote unquote recent times. And that's why I don't end the book in 2021, um, but to more broadly, loosely show how this story has continued in various aspects and how it continues to play out um, in the state's own search for control, but also the ways in which I think different populations not only practice photography, but find photography of use in seeking recognition from the state. Because it's not a one-way stream, the state trying to identify populations, that it's actually certain strategic moves by individuals, photographers, or the populations that they photograph in kind of navigating uh, the state and its own uh, amb ambitions. Well, Professor Thompson, uh, we've taken up a lot of your time, but I have sort of one last question to ask, which is uh, that I was hoping you might tell us a bit about your second book project, which I know you've sort of provisionally titled Coloring Black Surveillance, the story of Polaroid in Africa, anti-apartheid protest, and the contemporary art world. Yeah. This book kind of starts uh, from some of the findings that I had in this kind of first book project. Uh, the second book project is really interested in mapping out or thinking about the Polaroid uh, as a type of film product. Um, uh, what I think is really interesting about the Polaroid is that in different contexts of Southern Africa, you have advertisements of the Polaroid, but you have no evidence of the Polaroid's use. Uh, and so I, I look at what does it mean for kind of mapping a history of the Polaroid in the Southern African context? And initial research has revealed in 1971, black workers at the Polaroid Corporation led by uh, Ken Williams and Caroline Hunter uh, formed the Polaroid Revolutionary Workers Movement in which they um, are protesting um, Polaroid's business in South Africa, particularly its interest in making of a surveillance technology in which ID photographs are being produced. Um, and this work kind of thinks about this kind of social and political economy of protest in relation to the reality that um, Polaroid is producing a surveillance equipment that is in some ways funding colored instant funding uh, instant colored photography, but it is also a way in which um, trying to bring conversations of photography in Africa and Black North America into better conversation with each other. Um, coincidentally, and again, this work is still in its early stages, the Polaroid Revolutionary Workers Movement and the popular support that it was able to mobilize led Polaroid to end its business in South Africa. But at the same time, you see Polaroid's increasing use um, in U.S. prisons uh, and also within um, the contemporary art practices of artists like Lorna Simpson, Dawu Bey, um, uh, Lyle Ashton Harris, any number of photographers who are engaged in the art world at a moment in which it's gripped by this discourse of multiculturalism. And so this book in some ways is trying to connect these disparate phenomena of anti-apartheid protests, the use of um, 
Polaroids as a type of surveillance equipment with its use in U.S. prisons and trying to also see how contemporary artists are navigating um, these spaces. But again, it's it's intended to help us further contextualize, um, I think, some of the technical aspects of photography um, that are overlooked. And again, to remind people that photography is made and used by people. Uh, And uh, in this case of the Polaroid, um, Polaroid and Kodak alike were based in predominantly Black towns, Rochester and Cambridge, and they employed Black workers. Uh, And just as I try to do in this book is that I try to tell these histories um, through um, populations and their experiences that tend to be under-recognized or marginalized as a result of the conceptual and discursive language that we use to talk about these historical phenomena. Well, that sounds really uh, interesting, and I can definitely see how that is going to build on some of the concepts that you develop uh, in this book. Um, all right. Well, I, w- I want to thank you thank again you so much. Uh, yeah, for being on, on the show today. I really enjoyed it. Take care. Thank you.